please be seated and turn with me, please, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, to the passage that we read earlier. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help. We know that things of the spiritual things need the Holy Spirit to help us discern them. So we pray, Father, that the Spirit, who was the author of this, your word, would come to help us understand it, to receive it, to be nourished by it. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the clocks went back one hour last night. Uh, what did you do with your extra hour? Slept. Oh, somebody got up early. Okay. I just got a, a message from my uh, brother, uh, who's the farmer. My brother, the farmer back in Ireland, he sent me just this morning. And uh, if I can read it here, it's just been obscured. He says, don't forget, this weekend we will have an extra hour of rain. It's a typical kind of farmer comment, isn't it? Well, the teacher, looking at chapter 3, verse 1, the teacher Koheleth tells us there's a time for everything, including putting the clocks back. Uh, and there's a season for every activity under heaven. We could say there's a time for everything, and everything has its time. Now, we just have the one word for time in English. It's the word time. But in Old Testament Hebrew, as well as in the Greek the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are two different words which have different meanings. And these two words, these two different words, are used in chapter 3, verse 1. So we could possibly translate it, there's an appointed time for everything, and everything has its appropriate time or season, as the NIV translate it. There's an appointed time for everything, and everything has its appropriate time. So the appointed time, that first word for time, has to do with the time on the clock or the calendar, time in terms of days and hours and minutes. And the second word has to do with the right time for something, the appropriate time, the right season. Like, what's the time to put up Christmas decorations? Well, one or two of you might say, well, it's 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve. You might have a precise time, but most of us would say, well, Christmas season is the time to put up Christmas decorations, or maybe the season of Advent. It's certainly not October, but we'll not blame Terry for what Morrison's is doing, putting up decorations in October. So think of the children's game. Uh, I think the children still, still play it. What's the time, or what time is it, Mr. Wolf? I thought it was maybe what time is it, Mr. Wolfie, but Kitty says, that's just me. It's what time is it, Mr. Wolf? And if you know the game, what time is it, Mr. Wolf? You say three o'clock and the children take three steps towards the wolf. That's precise time. That is clock time, three o'clock. But if you ask what time is it, Mr. Wolf? And the wolf says dinner time. Well, dinner time could be any time in the clock. I'm sure if we were to ask everybody here what time you ate your dinner, it would all be different times. So when the wolf says dinner time, he's basically saying now is the appropriate time, the season for me to gobble you up, to eat you. Now, why do I point this? Why do I point this out? Um, 
Am I wasting your time? Well, I hope not. Back to chapter 3, verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and everything has its appropriate time. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Now, it is possible. It is possible that verse 1 is simply saying the same thing twice. Uh, and that is common in Hebrew poetry. And if that is the case, then I have wasted your time. But I think there is more going on here. I think by using the two different words for time, verse 1 is giving us a nudge in the ribs. It's giving us a nudge to look at something that will become clearer in verses 9 to 15, the passage after the poem, although we're not going to look at all those verses today. But what is that nudge? And what is that nudge in the ribs trying to get us to notice? Well, it's trying to get us to notice two things, I think, with these two words. Firstly, that God is sovereign over time. There is an appointed time for everything. Who does the appointing? It is God. It is God who does the appointing. God is sovereign over time. And just to think about that for a moment, that means he is sovereign over our time and our times. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 31 verse 15, my times are in your hands. Because if God is sovereign over time, then he's also sovereign over your times and my times. He is the God behind the appointed. He is the God behind the appointed time for everything, including everything that happens in our lives. Everything. But then secondly, this nudge in the ribs is getting us to notice there is also an appropriate time, a season for every activity, for every matter under the sun or under the heavens. And we are to recognize that if we are to live wisely, if we are to live wisely. The sovereignty of God does not rob us of our human responsibility to recognize that there is, for example, a right time, an appropriate time, a season to plant or to uproot, to tear down or to build, and yes, a time for war and a time for peace. And I think the teacher wants us to ask ourselves, remember this is wisdom literature, this is not history, this is not law, this is not doctrinal statements, this is wisdom literature, and it often works by getting us to think and ask questions. And the teacher wants us to ask the questions, what does it mean to live wisely in a world where all our time and all our appointed times are in God's sovereign hands? What does it mean to live wisely in a world where all our time and all our appointed times are in God's sovereign hands? But then secondly, what does it mean to live wisely in a world where there are times, appropriate times, seasons for us to weep or to laugh? to scatter stones or to gather them, to be silent, to speak, to hug, embrace, and not to hug or embrace. Christopher Wright has said that wisdom means knowing what time it is and knowing how to act or how not to act in the light of that understanding. Wisdom means knowing what time it is and knowing how to act or not to act in the light of that understanding. Now, that is not always easy. But the message of Ecclesiastes is precisely that. 
life is not easy. It's not easy to live, and it's not easy to understand. There is no quick fix formula. There is no magic, easy thing that makes sense of life. Even, even for the person with a living faith in God, as the teacher has, as, as we shall see, as Koheleth has, he has a faith in God. However, we know from the New Testament that there is good news for us if we are Christians today, if we are people with a living faith in Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God. God has promised, hasn't he, in James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But remember the next verse, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. God has promised in his word to give us the wisdom we need when we ask him in faith. Now that is not, <clears throat> I'm not contradicting what I just said, that is not a quick fix uh, to all of life's problems. That promise is not necessarily to give us all the answers we might like and crave. But it is a promise to give us the wisdom to know how to live in a world where we don't have all the answers. That's wisdom. That's biblical wisdom, to know how to live in a world where we don't have all the answers. Wisdom to live in a world where there's an appointed time for everything and everything has its appropriate time. Well, that's chapter 3, verse 1. I've not been very inspired with headings. Chapter 3, verse 1 is the introduction to the poem, if you like the principle behind the poem. Second section is verses 2 to 8, the poem itself. And then thirdly, the verses 9 to 11, kind of reflecting on the poem or pondering the poem, as Chris Wright has, has called it. So secondly, then, the poem, chapter 3, verses 2 to 8. To analyze a poem is a bit like taking a mechanical digger to a flower bed. So I'm aware of that, but so let me read it again before I make just a few brief comments on it. There's a time to be born. The word here is season, a season to be born, a season to die, a season to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Just three brief comments here, two brief comments and one slightly less brief comment. First comment is this, the whole of life is here. The whole of life is here from birth to death and everything in between. And there may well be a nod to this whole life picture with the fact that there are 14 couplets with 28 times that the word time is mentioned in this poem. These are all multiples of seven. 14 couplets, 28 words 
28 times the word time is used. Maybe a nod to the perfect number, the biblically complete number seven. The whole of life under the heavens is here from birth to death, time of weeping and laughing, of embracing, etc. That's the first comment. And the second comment is that the whole of every life is here, pretty much. The whole of every life, of your life and mine. It's not just that all of us have a time to be born and a time to die, but we know there are times for weeping and there are times for laughing. We know, we know even if we're not directed in a way that our friends from Ukraine have been directed, we know there's a time for war and a time for peace. So the whole of every life is here pretty much. And there's a time to tear and a time to mend. But then thirdly, given that the whole of life is here and that the whole of life for all of us is here pretty much, given that each of us will know something of these different times or seasons, are we wise enough? Are we wise enough to realize, as David Gibson has said in his book on Ecclesiastes, where we are now is not always where we will be. Where we are now in life is not where we will always be. The seasons of life change just as surely as the seasons of the year change. And we know that, especially those of us who have been around a few more years than others, we know that. And it, it works both ways, doesn't it? A time for laughing can be followed by a time of tears, but equally, if we are in a season of tears, there will also be a, it will not last forever. There will be a season it might not feel like it, but there will be a time when the tears will stop. There's a time for scattering stones, but there's also a time for gathering. If there's a time for gathering, there may well come a time for scattering. There's a time for planting and a time for uprooting, a time for weeping and a time for laughing, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Uh, Rob Parsons, some of you know of Rob Parsons from uh, Care from the Family. And uh, he, um, when he was conducting a marriage service, and you will know that the, the typical marriage vow has for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And uh, he makes the point, and I think he says this pretty much now at every wedding he conducts, that these promises that married couples make to each other, that one day, one day, these things will happen. These promises will be called in, as it were. It's difficult to anticipate that if it's a young couple getting married, but it is true. It's true with the wisdom of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There will be times when things are better and times when things are worse. Times when we are perhaps richer, whatever way you want to interpret that, times when we'll be poorer. In sickness and in health, there is a season for every activity under the heavens. And that is true whether we are married or single. Now, here's the question. Are we ready? Are we ready for those God-appointed seasons in our life when our life changes? Because these verses, these verses, this wisdom literature teaches us to be ready. 
or at least not to be surprised, not to be shocked. We might be surprised, but not to be shocked. The New Testament would want to ask us, wouldn't it? One of the ways to be ready when the seasons of life change, perhaps in very dramatic ways, as outlined here in Ecclesiastes, is our is our life built on the is our life built on the unchanging rock of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, who does not change like the seasons or like the wind or the weather. Because if you flick over to chapter 3, verse 14, I know we didn't read it today, we can be sure that the God, the, the God, what does it say in verse 14? I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken for it. We can be sure that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is something that will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. There's a time for everything and a season for every matter under heaven. So then thirdly, we've looked at the introduction to the poem or the kind of principle behind the poem. We've looked at the poem itself. And then thirdly, reflecting on the poem from verse 9 onwards. Have you ever been on a train uh, or on a bus or a plane and everything was going nice and smoothly and you brought out your flask or maybe you've ordered a cup of tea or coffee or a bottle of juice and you've just put the cup or the bottle to your lips and the bus suddenly swerves or the train puts the brakes on or the plane hits turbulence, unexpected turbulence or hits. Have you ever had this experience in a plane where it drops in an air pocket? Mm, that's quite dramatic, isn't it? I remember a friend and I, just about 20 years ago, actually, year 2000, uh, 2000 uh, yeah, 2003, flying to Kenya, and unexpected. It was an overnight flight, and the, the, the cabin crew were just waking people up, serving breakfast, blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> I felt like quite a few seconds. It probably was only two seconds, but in that time, the plane would have dropped several hundred, maybe even a thousand or two feet. Of course, things went everywhere. And my friend and I just laughed because it was like hysterical laughter, you know. Well, verse 9, coming back to the text, verse 9 is a little bit like that, isn't it? You have this, this beautiful poem, this rhythm of the different seasons of life. And then, what do workers gain from their toil? You think, hey? And we can understand, can't we, why Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 is often read at funerals, including humanist funeral. A colleague of mine has been at a humanist funeral where they read Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8. But very rarely will you hear verse 9, or verse 10, or verse 11, or verse 13 or 14. You see, Koheleth, the teacher, does not want to let us escape so easily. Once again, he asks the disturbing question, the key question we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, when we did the introduction, remember there was a key word and a key phrase and a key question. This is the key question. What do workers gain from their toil? What do workers gain from their toil? What's the expected answer from Kohela? Expected answer is nothing. You don't hear that at funerals, do you? 
but, but how, how does this fit in with what he has just said? Well, I think I think this. I mean, it's difficult literature, but I think if what he's saying is this: even if you know what time it is, and live accordingly, so what? What's the point? Is this not the burden, or the business that God has given to the human race, that our time, even if we spend it wisely, comes to an end? And that our time, even if we spend it wisely, will bring us seasons and things that we cannot make sense of, things that we cannot control. Oh yes, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. I mean, that, that may include a reference to creation, but I think it's more than that. I think what the writer is saying here is that everything God does is good and everything under God's sovereign control has happened at the right time the appropriate time, the best time, according to his sovereign supreme wisdom, including the time for war and the time for peace. But the problem is, it's not really a problem, but we often consider it a problem. We are, we are not sovereign. We are not sovereign. We are not like a mighty emperor. We want to be, don't we? We want to be sovereign in our own lives. It's like David was mentioning last week about going into the room. He wants to be sovereign. Well, you didn't say that, but basically you said that. We want to know, have a handle on everything. We want to be able to understand everything, to control everything. But we are not sovereign. We are creatures of time, finite and mortal. How can we ever understand or fathom what God has done from beginning to end? We cannot even understand what God has done from beginning to end in our own lives, never mind in the lives of others, never mind in the whole history of this world and universe, past, present, and future. And the teacher here is pointing us to the sovereign God, to the eternal God who sits above and beyond time, the only one who can see the whole picture, who can see the whole story of time, the whole completed tapestry of his purposes and plans, including, as we were singing earlier, the strands of sorrow that have their place within his tapestry of grace for the believer. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But our problem is because we are in the picture, or if you like, in the tapestry, we cannot remove ourselves from the picture to see the whole picture. It's like a whale in the ocean trying to see the whole ocean. Can't be done. All the whale can experience is what it's surrounded by or the limits of where it can travel to. Now, we who are time-bound creatures cannot understand. And how foolish to think that we could what the eternal God has done from beginning to end. And it is foolishness to think that we can or live, live as if we can, to live as if we are sovereign. You see, this too is what it means to live wisely in this world, to know and accept that God is sovereign and we are not, and to be glad that God is sovereign and we are not. And this is what David Gibson means when he says, part of growing up in this world is learning to grow small. Learning to grow small. Isn't that, isn't that what Jesus takes and talks about in the kingdom of God? You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then you need to be least and the servant of all. 
Do you want to be first? And you need to be last. I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Part of growing up wisely in the world is learning to grow small, learning to know and to be glad that gone alone sees the end, every end from every beginning, that he alone oversees things and controls things so that the appointed time and the appropriate times are woven together into something beautiful. And for his glory, Then verse 11 tells us something else, doesn't it? We may not be able to understand what the eternal sovereign God has done from beginning to end, but he has placed eternity in the human heart. We are like ships in the harbor. You know, we cannot see beyond the harbor walls. We cannot see the ocean or the vastness of the ocean, but we know from the rising and the falling of the water that there's something more going on out there. We know from the waves, you know, that in a storm, even in the harbor, there can be waves and ripples that come into the harbor. We know from that that there's a world beyond the walls that we see. And so, for example, and I know, I know you've had this experience, some of you, because you've told me, but I'll not use you as an example. I'll use an elderly woman in Yorkshire in Leeds. So when an elderly woman says to me, as she did some years ago, she's crippled by heart failure. She's puffing away, short of breath. She has blue lips, and she tells me that she used to run up and down the hills around Sheffield, but that inside she feels she's the same person. She feels the same, despite the ravages of time on her body. She feels she's still that teenager running up and down the hills. When you hear and when you experience something like that, you are hearing a whisper that God has set eternity in the hearts of humans. Uh, there was a children's program on TV some years ago, some of it filmed in Glasgow, uh, called Me Too. It actually was before the Me Too movement, but it was called Me Too! Exclamation mark, and there was a character in it called Granny Murray. And it would follow the course of a day children's program. And the end, end of most programs, Granny Murray would flop in the armchair and say, where has the time gone? Where has the time gone? And we often have that experience of time, don't we? We either say time flies or time is heavy. Uh, time flies when we're enjoying ourselves, as I'm sure it is now. Uh, time drags when you're in an airport waiting for a delayed flight, or waiting for a bus at a bus stop. Now, many years ago, C.S. Lewis said, when we, when we pass these comments about time, as if we have this kind of uneasy relationship with time, we can't get to grips with it. It's either flying or it's dragging. Where is the time gone? C.S. Lewis says, it's as if we are fish complaining about the water. You think, what? But if a fish is complaining about the water, that suggests that water is not their natural environment. That there is some kind of other environment that that fish is made for, which he can call home. And C.S. Lewis says, when we complain about the passage of time, this kind of sense that we, we just never get to grips with time, that suggests that we are made for something more than a world of time. 
either for a world where there is no time or a world where time is experienced very differently to what we experience here. This too is a whisper that God has set eternity in the hearts of humans. Now, just in these last couple of minutes, consider this. Think about this. If God has set eternity in our hearts, and the Bible teaches us, tells us that he has done so, and the evidence, the whispers are there as evidence to support that claim. If God has set eternity in our hearts, and this life under the heavens and under the sun is not all there is, and if when our physical bodies give way, like my elderly friend in Yorkshire, to heart failure or to whatever, if when our bodies give way to the ravages of time, there is some part of us, spirit, soul, that lives on eternally, for eternity, what does it mean to live wisely? As well as the things that we've recognized already today, what does it mean to live wisely? Well, the Bible would tell us that to live wisely as time-bound creatures who are made for eternity. The part of living wisely is to trust our lives and trust our lives to the sovereign God who rules not just over time, but over eternity. To entrust our lives to the God who rules over time and eternity. Because although it's true we cannot fathom or understand what God has done from beginning to end, we can, just like a wise child with a loving parent, just like a wise child with a loving parent, we can accept things we do not understand. Now, I know sometimes a child will be frustrated at a parent asking them to do something or putting limits of something. But at their best, and certainly as the child grows up, the wise child will recognize that the loving parent is telling them to do things or not to do things out of love and wisdom. And the child is able to accept. Why? Because they know and trust the parent. They trust the parent. And so it is that by trust and faith, we too can accept, even though we cannot fully understand it, that the sovereign eternal God came into our world of time at the right time, at the appointed time. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. We can't understand that. How can we fathom that the sovereign eternal God should come into this world? But that's what the Bible tells us. At the right time, at the appointed time, God sent his son born of a woman. And by faith, we can accept, even though we cannot fully understand it, that the eternal sovereign God, now think of this, and you know this, but just think about it, that the eternal sovereign God in Jesus Christ experienced a time to be born and a time to die. Is that not astounding? Is that not astonishing? That the God who sits enthroned as sovereign over time and eternity should in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, know a time to be born and a time to die? Why to redeem those, to save those, to rescue those born under the rule and condemnation of the law? To set us free and to bring us into the family of God to be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And we cannot fully understand it, but by faith we can accept that while the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God 
is eternal life, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We don't fully understand that. How God should come to us in Christ with a time to born, a time to be a time to be born and a time to die, in order that we do not reserve we do not receive the wages we deserve, but rather the gift. The gift of eternal life that we do not deserve and could never earn. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So let me ask you, have you received that gift from God by faith? That gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because I tell you, that is the wisest thing that any of us could ever do. That is the wisest thing that any of us could do. Because it truly is a matter of life and death. And yes, ultimately a matter of heaven and hell for all eternity. And remember this as well. Your time is limited. Your time is limited. But eternity is not. So choose wisely what you do with your life under the sun. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which helps us to see and to understand what it means to live wisely in this futile life under the sun. We thank you for the the things that we cannot fathom, but by faith we can accept. We thank you, Father, and pray that for each of us today, we would know that step of wisdom, becoming small, recognizing that you are sovereign and we are not, and receiving that free gift that you give to us through Christ, that we might not receive the wages of our sin but receive that gift which you offer to us freely of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, may it be so for now and for all eternity. Amen.